Well, as we come to the Word this morning, turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 13. And Psalm chapter 13 that Steve read a little earlier is what we're going to use as our template as we work through the message this morning. And I hope everybody got the, uh, the handout, and really my desire and my goal with that is I wanted everybody to be able to walk away from this study with with a template, something in their hands that would put together everything that we've talked about so far that you could take with you as kind of a guide as you hopefully prayerfully do what we are talking about in your own time as well as in time with other people. Uh, There's also a column there for you to take notes in each part as as you want to go through, and we'll talk about that more as we go along. Well, this morning, really, we come to the pinnacle of the study, and we come to the end of our journey as we're desiring to learn to speak the language of grief through the Lament Psalms. Now, all the previous weeks were meant really to bring us to this point. And as we've been working through Lament Psalms together, as we've been learning this language, it's had the following syntax or sentence structure really for us. As we've worked through first, we talked about how we need to turn to God in prayer, and then how we bring our godly complaints to Him. And then the last time that we were in this study, we talked about boldly making our requests to God. And we can do all this with confidence in our Savior who has paved the way for us. Our Savior and High Priest who, because of His work on our behalf, He provides a path for us to humbly yet confidently come before the throne of God and make our bold requests known. However, as we've been learning this language and as we've been journeying together, none of these steps so far along our path are meant as a stopping point. Each of these steps are not a final destination. They're they're not a place where we are meant to sit and we're meant to stay. All of these so far have been meant to usher us along this path to our final destination, which is what we're going to talk about today. And if you've been on this journey with us, and even with a specific pain in your life, each one of these steps as I said, is, has been designed and, and really to bring us to this point. This final piece for us to fully understand and learn this unique language that, that even in week one we said that to lament is uniquely Christian. Well, the, the school that I went to for my undergraduate degree was in Alamosa, Colorado. Uh, Alamosa is a small town, a very small town, is seated in the San Luis Valley. And as of the 2020 census, it has a population of just under 10,000 people. Well, when I went to undergrad, it was f- over 14 years ago. And back then, the town was even smaller than it is today. And it sits in a valley that is very arid. With just, with just a little bit less rainfall a year, it would technically be considered a desert. When I was going to school, the biggest thing, the biggest thing in town to do was to go to the Walmart. That, that was the biggest thing that we had. There just wasn't a lot there to do. And I would say the population is probably 10,000 when school is in session, right? It's just a pretty small town. And when people ask me where I went to school and I, I tell them where it is, unless you're from Colorado, it's very rare for someone to n- even know where Alamosa is. And so usually I qualify that statement. I tell them, yeah, I went to school, it's in Alamosa. And I said, that's the kind of place that you go through on your way to somewhere else. 
And it's absolutely true, because that may be true about this town, but however, Alamosa is surrounded by amazing beauty. It sits in a valley, surrounded on all sides by the Rocky Mountains. And just outside of Alamosa is the Great Sand Dune National Park, which are the tallest sand dunes in North America. In this mountain range, in this valley that it's in, there, it's it, there are 11 mountain peaks nearby that are over 14,000 feet. And there are other towns that are not far from there that sit in beautiful parts of the Rocky Mountains. If you were vacationing in Colorado, however, you wouldn't make it a point to vacation in Alamosa. You would go through the town on the way to somewhere else. Alamosa is not a final destination. So to learn this language of grief we've been talking about and to stop anywhere along the way, besides what we're going to talk today, if you stop anywhere along the way and not with where we're going to be this morning, it would be like going to Colorado to vacation, staying in Alamosa for a week, seeing only the town, and then going home. It would be stopping with the beauty and wonder of the surrounding mountains around you, yet sitting and experiencing only the desert. All of the last three sermons, all the what we've been looking at is meant to bring us to this final point. And, and where we're going to end this morning is beautiful and it's glorious because it's, it's in God himself. And we're going to see that this final destination is actually going to be a choice. And the choice that we find ourselves as we're journeying along in our grief, as we're speaking this language of grief, it, it's a choice of where do we place our trust. And it comes down to a matter of who will you place your trust in. This is because as, as we turn to God in prayer and we bring our godly complaints and we make bold requests to him, we don't always get the answer that we want. God doesn't always answer our prayers and cries the way that we want him to. Sometimes God says yes, or sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says not now and even as the psalmist, as Steve read this morning, we're sitting there wondering how long. How long? And, and that is incredibly hard. So what I want us to understand is that this process, this language that we are learning, or this process of grieving, does not in any way guarantee some sort of response from God. That is not the point. That is not why we speak it. Lamenting is meant to bring us to God. That is the point. The point is our final destination at the end of this journey should be in Him. But if we miss that, then we will, we will grieve, but we will eventually reach the point of giving up. It won't seem like God is moving. It won't seem like God is acting. We'll look around and, and, and we've spoken this language, we think, and, and we're grieving, but nothing seems to change. So we can easily despair and give up, close in on ourselves and isolate ourselves from God and others. So that is the decision. That is the final destination. That is the decision that we find ourselves with this morning is will we choose to trust or who will we place our trust in? And if, if at the end of this journey we choose to place our trust in God, we're actually choosing to worship. Lamenting done rightly can bring us to a point of 
worship. Mus- musician and author Michael Carty says, all true songs of worship are born in the wilderness of suffering. We need to choose to trust. It, this language is meant to lead us to trust in God, trust in who God is, what God has done, and ultimately, ultimately what God has promised he will do. Rebecca Eklund summarizes it in this way, the prayer of lament rejoices in God's saving actions in the now and hopes urgently for God's saving actions in the future, the not yet of the eschatological timeline. Those who lament stand on the boundary between the old age and the new and hope for things unseen. I think that last sentence is particularly important. If we lament properly, we may be standing in the old age with the pain and suffering of this fallen world, but we also stand in the new of what God has done and urgently and longingly look to the future of what God has promised. And also to be clear, this choosing to trust, this choice that we make at the end of this process as we lament before God is not a one-time event. It's not like you lament one time in your pain, right? So we go to God and we bring our complaints and we ask God boldly and we choose to trust and then we're good. Then your heart is anchored where it should be and you can move on. And that's just not true. That's just not the reality of the life in which we live. Lamenting does not take away our pain. It provides a path for our pain to lead us to greater and deeper trust in God. So as we go through the pain of this life, just understand, even with the same pain of life, maybe the the same struggle, the same grief, the same suffering that happens over and over, and you're asking, how long, God, will this ever end? We should go to God with our lament over and over and over again. And every time we do that biblically, what it's actually doing is we're allowing that pain that's in our lives to drive us to deeper and deeper trust in our God. Even though the circumstances never change. This is active patience. So the lamenting provides that way for us and it gives us that language to speak. As Mark Rogop says, laments are designed to lead us toward decisive, faith-filled worship. So with that in mind, we're going to look at Psalm 13, and we're going to help to see this. So hopefully at this point, uh, hopefully we can see the pattern. And, and I like Psalm 13 that way because it lays it out for us really clearly. It's a shorter psalm. And it actually goes in the order of which we've been talking. That doesn't always happen. Like we're, we're laying out this pattern, right, of turning to God, bring your complaints, ask boldly. You know, the psalmist didn't always write it in exactly that order in every single lament psalm. So some lament psalms, you have to do a little bit more work than in others, and that's okay. But Psalm 13 is helpful because it does lay it out very clearly for us in this language that we have been learning. And so we're going to see this transition point. It's going to be a really clear transition point for us this morning. So I want to walk through the psalm together so we can see what we've already learned and where the psalmist ends up. So the first four verses of Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Sorry, those are the first two verses. So, those first two verses, you can see right there at the, in the very first two verses, he comes before God and he brings his complaint. He turns to God in prayer and he brings his complaint before God and he's asking God, how long? It seems like you have forgotten me. This keeps going and going. It seems like you've turned your face away from me. Where are you, God? How long is this going to go on? So he comes before God and he brings his complaint. But then we see in, he makes some bold requests then in verses 3 and 4. And he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So after he bring, goes before God and he brings his complaint, he boldly asks. He says, God, listen to me. God, answer my prayer. God, hear my cry. He asks God to come and visit him in his loneliness. He feels alone and forgotten by God. So he cries out to God and he says, God, would you listen? God, would you answer? God, would you be near to me? And these are bold requests. But as we come to this point, I hope, I hope, hope we can see how it would, dangerous it would be for David to stay, to stay in verses 1 through 4. For David in his journey, in speaking this language, to sit and to stop in these first four verses. If he stayed in verses 1 through 4, he would despair of his life. He wouldn't find any hope. He wouldn't end at his final destination, which is God. It wouldn't bring him comfort. He would continue to feel lonely and forgotten as he goes through this. So we can't sit in these first four verses, and that's what makes that first word in, in front of verse 5 so pivotal for our understanding of lamenting. He says, but... But it's, a, it's this transitional word. This word shifts the focus of lament to statements of trust. And as you look at the lament psalms, as you read the lament psalms, you'll consistently see this transitional point. And it'll be words like but, we see that here. It'll be words like however, words like yet. So when you see those words in a lament psalm, that should trigger in your brain. This is a transition point. The psalmist has been complaining to God, he's brought his com godly complaints, he's asked God boldly, but now there is some sort of transition in the psalmist's focus. So those should stick out to you. And that intentional shift, the intentional shift is from the cause of the lament to God. The cause of the lament, the cause of the sorrow, the cause of the suffering, the cause of the hurt or the pain, and, and the psalmist intentionally shifts to who God is, what God has done, and what God has promised that he will do. Michael Jenkins suggests that these words are used because lamenting trust is not just a belief or conviction. It is choosing to trust in spite of what the circumstances might lead us to believe. It is choosing to trust in the face of circumstances, circumstances that are screaming at us to not 
trust in God. Our circumstances are screaming at us not to. And so the psalmist has to make this intentional shift. So before we look at some specific ways, in this psalm, what are, what are things that the psalmist turns to here? Uh, I just want to go through a couple other examples so we can see this transition. If you want to write these down, I'm going to read through them. I'm going to write these down. This is Psalm 31. So in Psalm 31, uh, we'll see a transition from verse 12 to verse 14. And this is what the psalmist writes. He says, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. That's in verse 12. And then in verse 14, he says, But, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. Or in Psalm 71, Verses 10 through 11, we'll, we'll, we'll hear the complaint and then we'll see a transition in verse 14. So Psalm 71, verses 10 and 11 and verse 14 is what he, he writes. He says, For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forgotten him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. And then in verse 10 he says, But, but I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. And these are just examples. And as you read, my desire, even with pointing some of these out, is that as you read the Psalms, from this point forward, as you are reading a lament psalm, my prayer is that these things, these transitional points, would stick out in your mind and would become clearer to you. And in each of these psalms, the psalmist allows the pain to bring him to a point of an intentional choice to actively and patiently trust in God. Even though there is no indication, just to say once again, there is no indication that the circumstances have changed. What we see going on then, if the circumstances haven't changed, if I read a lament psalm and the circumstances that the psalmist is crying out to God about haven't actually changed, then what we are actually witnessing in that transitional moment is what is going on in the heart of the psalmist. The psalmist in each of these laments is choosing to change their focus from the cause of the pain to trust in God. So then what characteristic, you notice that the psalmist, what they're going to do when they make this transition is they're going to intentionally focus on an attribute of God that speaks directly into their situation. Okay? They're going to intentionally focus their heart and their mind on a specific attribute of God that speaks into their suffering. So we're going to look at examples. We're going to use Psalm 13 to help us see some of the things the psalmist turns to in this period of suffering in their life, some attributes of God. But these aren't the only attributes of God. And these aren't the only attributes of God that are in other lament psalms, to be clear. But we're going to use this just to help us see and understand how the psalmist does it. And he makes this transition in verses 5 and 6. So I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 and we're going to look at each one of these statements that are an intentional, an intentional choosing to trust. So verse 5 and 6. But I, but, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. 
My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So the first expression of trust that he says is, I have trusted in your steadfast love. He says, but, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. What, what the psalmist is doing is he's looking to what God has already done and based off of history with God, he chooses to continue to place his trust in God. And we can really think about this in two ways. First, we can see the ways that God has proven himself trustworthy and how he's dealt with his people throughout history in his word. God has given us his word. And one of the wonderful things that we should get out of his word is we should see how time and time again God is faithful to his people. In the pages of scripture, we can see how God continually demonstrates his unchanging love his steadfast love for his people time and again, and he does it in the face of extreme unfaithfulness. His people are continually unfaithful toward him, yet God shows himself to be faithful. God's steadfast love is consistent with his character. So one way then, one way that we can help our hearts to trust in God's steadfast love is through reading narrative in Scripture and seeing how God has shown himself faithful throughout time and history over and over and over again, even in the face of unfaithfulness. However, We don't only see God's steadfast love on the pages of Scripture. We also see his steadfast love on display in our own lives. Every believer, every believer has a record of God's steadfast love toward them. Just as it was true for the people of Israel, his steadfast love for us, and this is wonderful, his steadfast love for us is not dependent on us. Praise the Lord for that because of his steadfast love depended upon us being worthy of that love then we would all be condemned. We would all be hopeless because on our own there is nothing lovely about us. There is nothing worthy in us of God's unchanging love toward us. And the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is in a way that I will never fully, truly understand, God chooses to love us. He chooses to love you and he chooses to love me despite the fact that he knows exactly what kind of person we are. He knew the kind of person we would be before he chose to shower us in his unchanging, steadfast love. And the problem is that while we're in the middle of our suffering, it's easy, we easily focus inward and we can't see it. We can't see all the ways that God has and continues to demonstrate his love toward us. All we can see is the pain that we are in. So this shift, this transition to intentionally focus on God's steadfast love towards us takes intentionality on our part. This requires us to take the focus of ourself, off ourselves and our pain and to think actively about and to remind our hearts the ways we have seen God faithfully demonstrate his love toward us. I think practically speaking, there are a lot of ways that we can do that. We can do it verbally with other people as we verbally share ways that God has demonstrated his steadfast love to us and being intentional to share it. We can write it down, and I would encourage that because then we can go back to 
and read ways that we have seen God be faithful towards us in his unchanging love. I think a great example also, and so I'm going to use them as an example, as the, the Johnses went through their cancer journey last year, one of the things that they did to be intentional, even in this, for anyone who went into their home, they had a wall with stickies on it. And every time God demonstrated his steadfast love toward them in very particular ways, even very small ways that God communicated to them that I love you, they wrote it down and they put it on the wall so that when they're in the middle of the hard times, they could see. When it was hard for them to think clearly, even they could see this is how God has shown his steadfast love toward us. And I'll tell you, by the end of that journey, that wall was covered. Covered with stickies as a glorious testament to God's faithful, unchanging love towards them in the midst of intense pain and suffering. Practicing this in our lives will be hard. And it'll be hard because we won't feel like it. We'll feel pain. Yet if we allow lamenting to bring us to this point, if we, if we don't allow the pain to, to cause us to sit in our complaint and to sit in our bold request, but allow, us to, allow it to get us to this point of intentional trust, then we can consistently and frequently choose to trust in God who has shown himself to be trustworthy and has shown himself time and time again to demonstrate his steadfast love toward us. And really what I'm talking about, it's no different than the faith God gave us at our salvation. At our salvation, as God gifted us faith, we chose to place our trust or our faith in what the Bible said about God. We, we put our faith in Christ. We learned about Christ and we put our faith in Him. We chose to trust that as we repented of our sin and we placed our trust in Christ, that He would forgive us of our sin. That we would have all that Christ had promised us. Redemption, reconciliation with God, adoption as children of God, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, all of which that we did not earn. And this is true of our salvation, but it's also true in our everyday journey with God. And that's what we're doing when we choose to trust. And we can see it clearly in Romans and Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We can trust in God's steadfast love towards us through Christ that is our source of grace we are currently standing in, in the middle of our trials. God gives us the grace that we need for the moment we are in. 
And that is an expression of his unchanging love. But not only does the psalmist remind his heart and choose to trust in God's steadfast love, he also says, his second statement of trust is, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. That's his second statement of trust. This, this statement connects our trust with God's plan of redemption. I like what Mark Vrogrop has to say about this statement of trust. He says, time and time again, God rescues his people. Suffering does not mean that God has forgotten or rejected his people. Rather, the long arc of God's plan for salvation is always at work, even though we cannot fully see the trajectory. This is difficult because it is a choice to trust in the face of uncertainty. It's, it's choosing to trust even though we don't understand how all the pieces fit together. Even though we may never see how it all fits together in this life, we can be assured that whether we understand it or not, whether we see it or not, we can trust in God's plan of redemption which was put on display for us in Christ. And what we see on the cross, what we see occurring on the cross should be a source of encouragement for us in in the trials of life. In the darkest moment of Jesus' life, we talked about this and then bring it up again because I feel like it's so helpful because we see Jesus doing exactly what we're talking about. In the darkest moment of his life, he cries out with the words of Psalm 22, verse 1. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we do that, we see the Father's plan of redemption unfold. And even just the night before, Jesus in the garden, and he says, God, if you would take this cup from me, do it. But not my will, not my will, but yours be done. Even in the face of suffering and pain in this moment, he chooses to trust in the Father's plan. And we all know that the darkest moment of Jesus' life led to an empty tomb and the salvation of God's elect. The moment of seeming defeat was actually a moment of triumph. And that should give hope to each and every one of us in our suffering. Not that we'll see even necessary temporal victory in in this life, but that we can trust in the one who has secured an eternal victory on our behalf. We even see Paul work through the same process once again in the letter of Romans, and we see it in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Paul connects the suffering of this life to the glory of our salvation in Christ. In Romans 8, verses 35 and 36, Paul says, or he writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul describes the sufferings that every Christian faces in this life. Tribulation and distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And as Paul paints this broad brush of suffering in this life, he actually laments from Psalm 44, verse 22, and verse 36. When he says... When Paul says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are guarded as sheep to be slaughtered, he is quoting from a lament psalm. So he's lamenting, and and Paul could have stayed there in considering the life 
of suffering of the believer. Yet Paul doesn't choose to stay there. Paul allows this to bring him to a point of trust. And we see this transition in, in verses 37 through 39. He writes, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We see Paul make this transition. Even here in Romans chapter 8, he allows the suffering in this life and the language of grief in the Psalms to bring him to a point of trust in the character of God as expressed in salvation. As God is glorified through the salvation of sinners, Paul places his trust. And this is trust in the experience in every believer in their salvation, not only in the past moment of salvation, but also in the promise of future glory. So we see it clearly that we can look back and we can say, I can see and I know that God has saved me. So I can trust in this God that has saved me, but we also see it for the future, even in our suffering. In Second Corinthians verses four, or sorry, Second Corinthians chapter four, verses sixteen through eighteen, Paul writes, "So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away; our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In the middle of our suffering, not only can we choose to trust in God's steadfast love, but we can also choose to trust in God as we rejoice in the past fact of our salvation, the current grace that we have from God in our salvation, and the future glory that is promised to us in our salvation as well. But he makes, in, in Psalm 13, he makes, he makes one more expression of trust, one more statement of trust. In verse 6, he says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And this brings us to that moment of faith-filled worship that in the midst of his suffering of the trial of this pain of the circumstances that aren't changing he focuses on god's steadfast love he trusts he trusts in god's plan of salvation past present and future and he chooses to trust and it's expressed in this faith-filled worship he said i will sing to the lord it's like a shocking moment at least for me, it's a shocking moment. This is, like, this is like Paul and Silas in the dungeon, chained, imprisoned, and yet they're singing praises to God. And you're like, how can they possibly do that? It's just, it's just, it's just hard to understand. Yet we see this intentional choice here by the psalmist that in the midst of this pain and suffering that isn't changing, that he will sing to the Lord. And that God has dealt bountifully with him? Bountifully? Yet we see, though, how what seems impossible by our human standards is possible with God. 
notice that David actually allows his lamenting to bring him to this point of singing to the Lord. Notice, notice he gets to this point in the psalm of singing after, after he's chosen to remind himself of God's steadfast love towards him. After he's chosen to remind himself of God's faithfulness and his salvation and rejoicing in the salvation that God has given him both past, present, and future. And at that point, as his heart and his mind has intentionally turned away from the cause of his lament to focus on God and who God is, the only thing that can come out at that point is praise toward God. He chooses to trust in the Lord and one way that trust is displayed is through this singing. Not singing in the painful circumstances but in the steadfast love of God on display in his life. We can see in the psalm, trust, singing, worship are all linked together as this final destination of our lamenting. This is why at the end of several of these sermons, I've intentionally read to you songs or hymns of lament. Because I want to give you tools. I'm going to do it again this morning, but I want to give you tools. Tools that you can use when you don't have the words to say and you don't know what to say. And you're like, I don't know what to say. Psalm 13. I, I want to sing, but I don't know what to sing. There are great songs and there are great hymns that godly men and women have written to help give expression to our grief, but also to turn our heart to trust in God. And we, Even as we've been studying on Sunday mornings in the book of Job, we can see this in his life. As you read the book of Job, you see a man, right, who God allows intense suffering into his life. Intense suffering that is, as we have learned, is not in any way a result of Job's own sin. Right? God allows his suffering through the loss of all earthly possessions, death of his children, rejection from his wife, intense physical pain. And as the book progresses, we actually see Job bringing his complaints to God. Job boldly requesting answers from God. And we haven't gotten there yet, but we're going to see that God answers Job. In chapters 38 through 41, we see God's response as God speaks directly to him. However, in God's answer to Job, what he does not tell Job is why he's allowed the suffering into his life. He doesn't actually answer the question that Job has of why have you allowed this? I don't deserve this. God doesn't actually answer that question for Job. So what does God do? Well, instead, God lays before Job his majesty, and he lays before Job his power, and he lays before Job his whole... In other words, God lays before Job himself. He gives Job a clear picture of his character. And after that, even, even after not getting actual answers to his questions, how does Job respond? We see it in Job 42, verses 1 through 6. And Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. 
Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. One of the purposes, one of the purposes of the book of Job is to show us how suffering, suffering when done rightly, should result in humble worship to God. What does Job do? In that moment, his circumstances haven't changed. He's turned to God. He's brought his complaint. He's asked God boldly. God actually doesn't give him an answer to his question, yet God shows him more of himself. And so what does Job do? He humbly worships God. That's his only response. He, he is exposed to deeper understanding of the character of God. He chooses to trust in God's character, and his heart is filled with humble worship to God, so he worships God, even, even though his circumstances haven't changed. And this is where we see that throughout the Lament Psalms, we see how the psalmists consistently land in this place of trusting God in the middle of their pain and suffering. I like how this is reflected in a song by Catherine Crowns called Already There. And the lyrics go, for, from where I'm standing, Lord, it's so hard for me to see where this is going and where you're leading me. I wish I knew how all my fears and all my questions are going to play out in a world I can't control. When I'm lost in the mystery, to you my future is a memory because you're already there, standing at the end of my life, waiting on the, the other side, and you're already there. From where you're standing, Lord, you can see a grand design that you imagined when you breathed me into life. And all the chaos comes together in your hands like a masterpiece of your picture-perfect plan. One day I'll stand before you and I'll look back on the life I've lived. I can't wait to enjoy the view and see how all the pieces fit. Lament creates a path through the messy wilderness of pain. This pathway that leads us to trust in God is not one that will always look the same, to be clear. As we have been learning this language of grief through the lament psalms, I pray that you have seen how there are many different ways the psalmist express godly complaint, or many different ways how the psalmist boldly make requests, or the different types of statements of trust. And as I said before we looked at these in Psalm 13, you'll notice that the characteristic of God that the psalmist chooses to focus on, that the psalmist chooses to place their trust in, is applicable to their current situation. So in times of loneliness, God is near and hears them. In times of danger, God is their shield and their protector. In times when it feels like things are out of control, God is the king of the universe. In times of injustice, God is the judge. In times of feeling unloved, God is the one who demonstrates his steadfast love. In times when it seems like God isn't doing anything, he is the faithful one who always fulfills his promises. And in each of these situations and circumstances, this moment of choosing to trust results in praise to God for whatever attribute of God speaks into that situation. Don't get caught up in thinking that you must somehow do this perfectly. The point is to allow our pain to consistently bring us to a point of trust. 
We must land here in a person, in, in God. That must be our fi- the final destination of our lament. And remember, you, you don't walk this journey in your own strength. <laughs> the good news is, is that you can't do it on your own. This is not, to be clear, this is not clenching your teeth and soldiering through. God helps you by the power of the Spirit to keep trusting in Him. It's only by the work of the Spirit in you that you are able to continue to do this. That you can come before God time and time again, bringing your godly complaint, making your bold request, choosing to trust in Him in the face of circumstances that are screaming at you that you're crazy. This is a work of God in you, and, and lamenting is the language of grief that, t- grief that takes you on a pathway that God has designed for us to continue to trust in him. Well, before we wrap up this study, there's one other point that I want to make that I think is important this morning. And it has to do with the role of the community, the Christian community in this process of grieving and lamenting in this language. And I don't want you to miss this. So in Paul, in Romans 12, verse 15, I think it's familiar to most of us, commands us as believers to rejoice with those who rejoice. He has a statement, weep with those who weep. Now the problem is, I think most Christians, when they read that passage, they don't actually know how to do it. It says weep with those who weep, but how do I do that? I think most of us think that all that it means is to be physically with someone as they're, they're crying, right? So perhaps you, you put your arm around them and you cry with them and you're with them. And to be clear, that is really, really important. We don't always have to say something when we're comforting someone in their grief. It's good and right to have times when you don't say anything, but you are sitting and just being with somebody in their grief. But what I think is important, that can't be all what this passage means. That that can't be the totality of weeping with those who weep. In addition, we need to come alongside each other in our grief and help each other speak this language of grief. And I want to make it clear what that can look like. That's part of the reason, reason why I gave you this handout. When did you see this psalm laid out? You can take a lament psalm like this and you break it up into a different part. If you look at the handout that you have for this morning, right, it has each of the parts that we've talked about. Turning to God, bringing your complaints to Him, it boldly asking, ask boldly and choosing to trust. And it, it lays out which part of the psalm fits into that part that we're talking about. But notice there's a column at the end that says, My lament. So what I encourage you to do, the the purpose of this or the point of this is that in your sorrow, in your suffering, to take the language that God has given us in the psalm and put it in your own words. Take verses 1 and 2 and put it in your own words. God, how long am I going to have to be in this suffering? God, why does it feel like you're not there? Why does it seem like you're not listening to me? Take the language of the psalmist and put it in your own words. And do the same with boldly asking and do the same with choosing to trust. Do it in your own words and then pray that prayer. Pray it on your own. 
pray it with somebody else. Because I don't know about you, but a lot of times I need help putting words. Like, you know, the weight can be s- feel so crushing that I need someone to help me and to do this with me. Use the language the Bible gives you to express your grief in your situation. And then allow the grieving person to pray that prayer out loud. Be there with them. Help them walk through it. And listen to them as they speak this language of grief to God in the moment. And I think that is a very practical, biblical, powerful way to weep with those who weep. God has not left us. God didn't give us a command like that and not give us the tools to do it, not give us the words to say. I'll tell you, doing this, doing this, not only will it drive your own heart in deeper trust with God, but it will bind you closer in community with other people like nothing else. As I end this morning, I want to read this song and give you guys another tool. It's by City of Light, and it's called Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. I'm going to end with this, and I'm going to pray. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope, is only Jesus, all the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me.